Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And today I have to begin with some sad news. Our dear friend, Queer Ninja, has died. And if you've been with me here in the salon for a while, you'll remember KMO and the Dope Bean and me talking about him and his great podcast, The Sounds of Worldwide Weed. You know, at my age, the news of a death of one of my friends seems to come almost every month now, but when it's the death of somebody that's much younger than myself, it really hits hard. And to be honest, getting this podcast out today is, well, it's about all that I can do right now, and and everyone who knew the ninja, well, they all feel about the same way, I'm sure. In a couple of months, uh, after we've had some time to adjust, KMO, the Dope Fiend, and I will be producing a joint podcast tribute to Queer Ninja, and we'll try to also include some of his other friends, like Lefty and BB. BB, of course, is Black Beauty, whose lovely voice we hear each week here in the salon after the featured speakers talk. Well, today, the best that I can do without coming to tears is to play one of Ninja's favorite songs at the end of today's podcast. But right now, well, it's time to press on. And taking Terrence McKenna's advice about what to do when hitting a barrier of some sort, well, I'm reverting to the last thing that worked, namely, another talk by the Bard himself. This one is a little different from most of the other 300 Terrence McKenna recordings here in the salon, in that, well, it's a scripted talk as opposed to his usual method of answering random questions from the crowd. And I hope you enjoy it. Basically, for myself, my involvement with shamanism has been a deepening meditation over now about 20 years. And it seems to me very fruitful because it continues to change and integrate itself ever more deeply into the meaning of reality at large so that uh, for me shamanism has become a kind of overarching metaphor for not only personal being in the world but the historical adventure the being of the species in the world so I want to talk about it today and and as an advocate I want to make it seem indispensable to living a life of right reason in the world I want to show that without shamanism the notion of humanism itself is in a kind of jeopardy and probably most of us can find ourselves in agreement with that. But then I want to leave most of us behind and go further <laughs> and suggest that this humanness rooted in shamanism is a humanness ultimately rooted in very complex symbiotic relationships with plants and chemicals in the environment want to argue, in fact, that uh, people without plants are in a state of potential neurosis, a state of 
existential wanting, and, then, and that, in fact, part of the Western dilemma is the sense of abandonment that followed with the breaking off of these symbiotic relations with vision-producing plants uh, that characterized the rise of Western monotheism and even more characterized the rise of modern society. But let me return then to the origins, because this is where I think the case can be made. My interpretation of the time we're living through and this amorphous movement that we all somehow in some way are a part of, which calls itself the New Age or what have you. I call it the Archaic Revival. And the reason I call it the Archaic Revival is rooted in my conviction that it is, in fact, a revivifying of the models and energy forms of archaism. And shamanism, then, is suddenly centrally highlighted. Shamanism was the profession ni plus ultra of the upper Neolithic era. And what was this profession precisely about? Well, it was about exploring the envelope of cognition, pushing against the linguistic membrane of what it was possible to say, symbolize, conceive, and communicate. Now, why should one species, out of all those competing on the earth, attain somehow a kind of mega-adaptive ability that causes a kind of compression of biological time into the phenomenon that we call history. Is it simply, as our theologians have always been forced to conceive, that divine agency entered into the mechanism of the world and somehow set a spark in motion that kindled and grew into humanity? Or is it, as the 19th century explored so exhaustively, the possibility that incremental change can eventually initiate uh, and insinuate into a situation new states of higher order, including even possibly the state of higher order that we call self-reflecting consciousness. But somehow this is no more than a gradual refinement out of previous states of nature. Well, what I want to suggest is that it is a bit of both of these points of view, the divine intervention and the evolutionary. I think what evolutionary biologists have missed in looking at the emergence of human beings out of the primate phylogeny is, generally speaking, the mutagenic influence of foods. The fact that a fruit-eating arboreal primate, because of a situation of spreading dryness in the environment, evolved into a pack-hunting creature of the grasslands with an omnivorous diet. 
and omnivores, by their very nature, expose themselves to a very large number of mutagenic influences. I'm speaking now chemically. Mutagenic influences that interfere with the correct copying of protein, interfere with uh, spacing of children, lactation, uh, interfere with mentation, psychoactive compounds, in the food chain and it's very interesting that as human beings transform themselves into omnivorous pack hunting omnivores you begin to see the first faint stirrings of self-reflection you begin to get the fire pits and later the the chipped flint leavings of earliest neolithic human tool making What this says to me is that there was a unique confluence of factors present in the evolutionary situation that were capable of kindling this ontological transformation of what had previously been the animal mind. And what I suggest this factor is, or was, psychoactive plants in the environment, specifically psychoactive plants in the grasslands environment in which human pastoralism evolved in Africa over a million years ago. The plant must be African. It must be extraordinarily noticeable in the environment. It must not be a deep forest endemic because this is not where human evolution was taking place. The only plant which fits this uh, description is uh, a mushroom of the psilocybin-containing variety. And it's very easy to see, I think, that the presence then of uh, psychoactive compounds of this sort in the early human diet set the stage for a number of structural and psychological changes. Psilocybin ingested in low doses increases visual acuity. Now, it's not difficult to see that in an animal in under evolutionary pressure in a pack hunting environment, increased visual acuity will mean a more successful reproductive strategy. This means that those animals not including the psychoactive substance in their diet will be mitigated against and fade from the scene. And by this process, a steady bootstrapping process, self-reflection was born in our species. How do we get from visual acuity to self-reflection? Low doses of psilocybin give increased visual acuity. Medium-range doses of psilocybin give an increased interest in erotic activity. (laughs) You should laugh. There may not be too many laughs with this one. (laughs) Slightly higher doses of psilocybin uh, give an experience of the numinosum, an actual contact with a mystery in the human psyche which is no less mysterious to us today 
than it was to our ancestors when the last glaciation was retreating against Canada. I mean, don't kid yourself. In the face of this, the content of this symbiotic relationship, modernism, rationalism, positivism, all is exposed as just whistling past the graveyard because the numinous depth of the mystery that seems to have called us out of the animal mind is uh, completely impenetrable to modern analysis. That's why even discussing its presence is mitigated against uh, so intensely. Well, I don't want to spend too much time on this early facet of the emergence thing. I want to move ahead and show that as pastoralism developed, as the domestic relationship between cattle, human beings, and mushrooms settled down into a self-reinforcing cycle of consciousness, language arose, religion arose of the goddess oriented variety and the connection of the cow to the goddess is there at the dawn time. There is no question about it. Language seems to have been the particular prerogative of women in the early emergent phases. This is uh, uh, possibly because men were involved in hunting activities where great premium is placed on silent stealthiness, while women were engaged in, as gatherers in the hunting-gathering phase, women were engaged in gathering plants. And as all botanists can tell you, gathering plants involves an extensive taxonomic language so that the difference, the minute differences between cereal grains and insects and all of these things need to be linguistically defined and characterized. And to this day, uh, a taxonomic description of a plant is uh, a, a joisty and thrill to read because, you know, subapically glabrous with lanceolate trifolium and so on for many, many lines. Uh, but in a strange way that is a law repeated over and over again through history, each advance somehow outsmarts itself. And the wonderful linguistic depth which women attained as gatherers through the production of folk taxonomy eventually led them to a terrible discovery, the discovery of agriculture, because they learned that rather than maintain this vast library of shifting information about seasonal plants randomly distributed or distributed according to the whims of nature, they could in fact focus on a very small number of plants, learn how to grow these plants, learn their needs alone, and at that point, the retreat was on, and the dualism was fully in place, and there was that which was domesticated, that which was of the hearth, and that which was of the ausland, the howling unknown, that which was beyond the pale. I think it was Weston Labar, great old anthropologist, who felt, he said, uh, 
hallucinogens can only be used in hunting and gathering cultures because uh, when agriculturalists use them, it makes it impossible to get up at dawn and go hoe the field. <laughs> and so suddenly the gods become the corn gods and the wheat gods, gods of symbolizing domesticity and hard labor and, uh, and that sort of thing. And at this moment, of agriculture, which led to overproduction, which led to trade, which led to cities and so forth, there is a beginning of the breaking away of this symbiotic relationship which had bound human beings to nature to this time. And I don't mean this metaphorically. I mean, I want to be taken seriously as proposing that the ennui of modernity is the consequences of a disrupted symbiotic relationship between ourselves and vegetable nature and that uh, only a restoration of this in some form is going to carry us into a full inheritance of our birthright as human beings. Now what did this symbiotic relationship consist of? What was the effect of this psychedelic use, this embeddedness of language using, cognition using, but stoned primates in the natural order? Well, I submit to you that what it was or how it acted operationally was as a uh, feminizing pheromone that the continuous exposure to this tremendum represented by the hallucinogenically induced ecstasy acted to continuously dissolve that portion of the psyche which as moderns we call the male ego. And I don't mean that it only worked on men. I mean that wherever in human personalities this certain catch began to form and build like a calcareous tumor in the personality, the psycholytic presence of the undeniable fact of the tremendum tended to dissolve this back into Tao, psychic health, however you wish to style it. And that the evolution of language then, setting up this movement off into specialization and a movement away from nature, set up the consequences of the ennui which permeates Western civilization. It is only in Western civilization that you get this steady focus on this monotheistic ideal and working out the implications of what is essentially a pathological personality pattern, the pattern of the omniscient, omnipresent, all-knowing, wrathful male deity. No one you would invite to your garden party. <laughs> It's very interesting that this ideal is the, the only instance, the only hypothesization of deity that I know of that has no congress with woman at any point 
in the theological myth. The god of Western civilization has nothing to do with women. And the presence of the Sophia and the presence of the Mater Dolorosa and all of these things have only been tolerated as heresies uh, in the Western tradition. And it is the Western tradition that has the most continuous break with this symbiotic relationship. In other words, we have wandered into a state of prolonged neurosis because of the absence of a direct pipeline to the unconscious. And we have then fallen victim to priestcraft of every conceivable sort. A similar situation, which may give us some objective perspective on our own, haunts the fate of those portions of Indo-European humanity that went east instead of west. In other words, the whole story of Indian civilization is the story of uh, a masculine, static, hierarchically organized uh, system coming into place in the wake of the loss of the secret of Soma, the loss of the portal to another kind of vegetable gnosis. Well, so provided then that I have made my case and convinced you that this is all gospel, uh, what kind of options are there to someone who believes this? Well, What that means is a brief survey of the anthropological opportunities to explore hallucinogenesis presently afforded by societies living throughout the world. There are, of course, the psilocybin complex discovered by Gordon Wasson, the magic mushrooms of central Mexico, which may have played a role in the Mayan and Toltec civilizations and the wider-ranging pantropical Strophaeria cubensis, Psilocybe cubensis, which originated in Thailand but is distributed throughout the warm tropics. Interesting, all of these uh, shamanically sanctioned hallucinogens are in the indole family, a very narrow family of compounds, with the exception, I, I almost fluid, with the exception of mescaline, which is in a different family, a kind of uh, amphetamine. But all the others, including the morning glory complex with its LSD-like alkaloids, chinoclavine and uh, ergonamine, uh, the psilocybin complex, which involves, as I said, several pandemic species and many highly indemnicized species, especially in the Pacific Northwest, the Iboka cult of Gabon in Western Africa, which is sort of the exotic cousin of all of these things, but nevertheless structurally uh, uh, an indole, and then the short-acting tryptamines and the beta-carbolines. The short-acting tryptamines can be used separately The beta-carbolines, though hallucinogenic in themselves, are usually used as monoamine oxidase inhibitors to enhance the effect of short-acting tryptamines. This is a highly evolved pharmacology and shamanic complex in South America. 
One of the peculiar puzzles of shamanic anthropology and ethnobotany is the clustering of hallucinogenic plants in South America. Why are the old world tropics, the tropics of the Malukas in Indonesia, not equally rich in hallucinogenic flora? No one can answer this question, but certainly Mesoamerica and the New World seems to be uh, the great home of these things. You notice that I don't mention any synthetics in the list. This is because I would sort of like to peel away the vision-producing plants from the whole strom and dang of the, uh, of the drug problem and the drug issue, which is a whole other kettle of fish and has to do with the fates of nations and trillion dollars, scamola, and uh, who knows what else. I, I prefer the uh, organic hallucinogens and recommend them to other people because I think their long history of shamanic usage is, uh, is the first seal of approval that you must look for. I mean, if these things have been used for thousands of years, then you can be fairly confident that they do not cause tumors or uh, uh, miscarriages or that this has... Because nature is far richer in exotic and poisonous and mutagenic and psychoactive chemicals than the human pharmacopoeia. I mean, many things are avoided. There are many potential hallucinogens that are not utilized by human beings. So there has been a certain <clears throat> trial and error selectivity applied to these things. I think it's important to confine oneself to, uh, to compounds which are least insulting to the physical brain, not because the physical brain has anything to do with the mind particularly, but because it certainly has to do with the metabolic uh, uh, end state of indole. And so things which are alien to the brain should probably not be introduced into it. One way of judging how long a relationship between a human population and a plant has been in place is to see how benign the compound is in human metabolism. I mean, if you take some plant and your knees are feeling rubbery three days later, or your eyes aren't in focus uh, 48 hours later, then this is not a benign compound. This is not a compound where there has been a smooth hand-in-glove fit with the human user. This is why, to my mind, uh, the tryptamines are so interesting, and why another reason why one I just thought of, that I argue for the mushroom as the primary hallucinogen involved in human origins, because these things bear a weird resemblance to human neurochemistry. Uh, the human brain, and indeed all nervous systems, run on 5-hydroxytryptamine, serotonin. Uh, 
N-N-dimethyltryptamine is uh, the hallucinogenic compound of this Amazonian complex is the most powerful of all hallucinogens in the human system and yet clears your system in a matter of minutes. This argues for a great antiquity of the relationship uh, between these things. Well, so then having discussed options, it would remain, it seems, to discuss techniques since it's almost what Huxley called a gratuitous grace. All conditions for success can be present and one can still fail, although not if all conditions for success are present and one does it over and over again. Maybe there's a, maybe there's a temporal variable there. I'm not sure. But uh, technique to me is a kind of a... I'm reluctant to talk about it because it seems so obvious to me what good technique is. I mean, you sit down, you shut up, and you pay attention. is basically the good technique. And then the footnotes add on an empty stomach in a dark room, feeling comfortable, and then sit down, shut up, pay attention. Uh, it's something which happens behind the eyelids. It is not eidetic hallucination, although it begins like eidetic hallucination. I've been talking about this kind of stuff now for about 10 years, publicly like this, and one of the major things, the major conceptual and linguistic problem to get over is to actually convey to people what's being talked about. Because probably I would assume 95% of the people in this room have something under their belt which they call drug experience. But did you know that yours is different from everybody else's? And that it, these things range from, you know, mild tingling in the feet to, uh, you know, language fails. And, and the thing to put across is the, the reality of the presence of this thing. And this is the importance in talking to a group with an interest in transpersonal psychology. The situation that we now reside in is not one of seeking the answer, but facing the answer. The answer has been found. It just happens to lie on the wrong side of the fence of social toleration and legality. And so we're just forced into this strange little war dance where Everybody knows that psychedelics are the most powerful instrument for the study of the mind conceivable. And yet, uh, you know, a lot of people are still ratomorphically involved in the academic and university system trying to ignore the fact that the tool has been placed in our hands like the 16th century when the telescope has invented we have proven that we are not large enough to take the tool into our own hands without a social and intellectual transformation. And I think it must begin 
in the field of psychology by acknowledging that if if what we are involved in, if what this paradigm transform is, is the archaic revival, and that we really can create a caring, refeminized, ecosensitive, global world by going back to these very, very old models, then it isn't going to be possible to do it on the strength of political exhortation and rap alone. It's going to have to rest on an experience that just shakes you to your roots, that is real and that is generalized and that can then be talked about and dissected. We need to acknowledge uh, the depth of our dilemma and the real truth, I think, that we know about our options out. I mean, we're playing with half a deck as long as we tolerate uh, that the cardinals of government and science should dictate where human curiosity can legitimately send its attention and where it cannot. I mean, it's a it's a uh, essentially preposterous situation. It is essentially a civil rights issue because what we're talking about here is the repression of a religious sensibility. In fact, not a religious sensibility, the religious sensibility, not built on some con game spun out by eunuchs, but based on the symbiotic relationship that was in place for our species for 50,000 years before the advent of history, writing, priestcraft, and propaganda. So it's a clarion call to recover a birthright, however uncomfortable uh, that may make us. Uh, a call to realize that life lives in the absence of the psychedelic experience that primordial shamanism is based on is life trivialized, life denied, life enslaved to the ego and its fear of dissolution in this mysterious mama matrix which is all around us and which apparently extends to infinity and where our historical future actually lies. This is the other thing. It is now very clear that techniques of mind-human uh, interfacing, pharmacology of the synthetic variety, uh, all kinds of manipulative techniques, all kinds of data storage, imaging, and retrieval techniques, all of this is coalescing toward the potential of a truly demonic or angelic kind of self-imaging of our culture. And the people who are on the demonic side are fully aware of this and hurrying full tilt forward with their plans to capture everyone as a 100% believing consumer inside some kind of uh, beige-furnished fascism that won't even raise a ripple 
So, so the shamanic response in this situation, I think, is to push the art pedal through the floor. This is again one of the primary functions of shamanism and the function that is tremendously synergized by the psychedelics. They are, in fact, if, as I spoke of them earlier, pheromones which dissolve the male ego, then they are also pheromones which synergize the human imagination, cause us to connect and reconnect the contents of the collective mind in ever more architectonic, implausible, and yet self-fulfilling ways. The, I really think that the only escape from the trap which post-industrial, male-dominated, politically manipulative, drug-running, uh, urban technocracy has in store for us, the only escape is a forward escape a kind of rushing past it and brushing it aside by virtue of an immense expansion of unpredictable creativity. But what shamanizing means in the ordinary folkloric level is healing. And the art function is somewhat in the shadow. But in the face of the need for a planetary healing, the art-making function of the shaman is going to stand front and center because what this art-making function is is generating a new guiding image of ourselves. This is why it relates so fundamentally to psychology. We need a new paradigmatic image that can take us forward through the narrow neck of historical forces that we can feel impeding and resisting this more expansive, more at ease, more human, more caring dimension that is insisting on being born. And so, in terms of political obligation, in terms of reforming and trying to save the soul of psychology, in terms of trying to goose along, connecting up the end of history with the beginning of history. All of this impels us, I think, to look at shamanism as the paradigmatic model, to take its techniques seriously, even those which challenge uh, the divinely ordained covenants of the constabulary, because if, if we don't do that, as I said, we're not playing with a full deck. You know, years and years ago, before the term psychedelic was settled on, uh, there was just a phenomenological description. These things were called consciousness-expanding drugs. Well, I think that's a very good term. Think about our dilemma on this planet. If the expansion of consciousness does not loom large in the human future, what 
kind of future is it going to be? Now, to my mind, the, the psychedelic position is most fundamentally threatening when fully logically thought out because it is an anti-drug position. And make no mistake about it, the issue is drugged. How drugged shall you be? Or, to put it another way, consciousness. How conscious shall you be? Who shall be conscious? Who shall be unconscious? And uh, imagine if the Japanese had won World War II, taken over America, and introduced an insidious drug which caused the average American to spend six and a half hours a day consuming enemy propaganda. But this is what was done, not by the Japanese, by ourselves. This is television. Six and a half hours a day. Average. That's the average. So there must be people out there hooked on 24 hours a day, or I visit people in L.A. who have one set on in every room, so they're racking up a lot of time for the rest of it. Uh, you see, what is needed is an operational awareness of what we mean by drug. A drug is something which causes unexamined, obsessive, habituated behavior. You don't examine your behavior, you just do it. You do it obsessively. You let nothing get in the way of it. This is the kind of life we're being sold on every level. To watch, to consume, to buy. The psychedelic thing is off in this tiny corner, never mentioned. And yet, it represents the only counterflow toward a tendency to just leave people in designer states of consciousness. Not their designers, but the designers of Madison Avenue, the Pentagon, so forth and so on. This is really happening. I mean, it's uh, only a matter of how tight you draw the metaphor that you realize, you know, I've been coming and going from Los Angeles recently a lot, and when the plane swings out over the uh, eastern part of the city, looking down, it's like looking at a printed circuit. All these curved driveways and cul-de-sacs with the same little modules installed on each end of them, and you realize, you know, that as long as the Reader's Digest stays subscribed to, and the TV stays on, these are all interchangeable parts. The, this is this nightmarish thing which McLuhan and Wyndham Lewis and others foresaw, the creation of the public. The public has no history, has no future, lives in a golden moment created by credit which binds them ineluctably to a fascist system that is never criticized. This is the ultimate consequence. This is the ultimate consequence of having broken off 
this symbiotic relationship with the vegetable, feminine, maternal matrix of the planet. This is what ended partnership. This is what ended balance between the sexes. This is what set us on the long slide. We can now examine the options available and put in place archaic options which will restore this balance. And to the good credit of people like Dick Schultes and Gordon Wasson and Albert Hoffman, we have in this century taken into our hands the tools, the information, and the means to do this. But psychology, there had better not be a Nuremberg because not enough people have stood up for this. People have contented themselves with ratomorphism for 25 years when they knew in their hearts that it was wrong. Feeling guilty out there? <laughs> you could cheer to show that it wasn't you. <laughs> So now, I think, uh, you know, the culture crisis grows ever more uh, intense. The stakes rise ever higher. If there were ever a time to be heard and be counted and try and clarify thinking on these issues, it would be now because, uh, you know, there is a major attack on the Bill of Rights underway in the guise of a so-called drug bill and somehow the drug issue is even more frightening than communism even more insidious McCarthy told America that communism was under the bed he was wrong Ronald Reagan and George Bush tell America that drugs are in the living room and they're right it is here, it is real, it is the hydrogen bomb of the third world. And the quality of rhetoric, the quality of rhetoric emanating from uh, therapists and psychologists and psychoanalysts is going to have to radically improve or we are going to have happen to us what happened to genetics in the Soviet Union. We're going to be lysenkoized. We're going to be made lily-white and all opportunity for exploring this dimension is going to be closed off, almost as a footnote to the suppression of these synthetic poisonous narcotics, which are mostly dealt by governments anyway. But the psychedelic issue, as I said, it's a civil rights issue. It's a civil liberties issue. The reason women couldn't be given the vote in the 19th century there was a very simple, overpowering reason that was always given. It would destroy society. And that's the reason given. This was also the reason why the king could not give up a divine right, the right of consanguinity. Chaos would result. And this is why we're told drugs cannot be legalized, because society would disintegrate. This is just nonsense. Most societies have always operated in the light of various habits based on plants. 
the whole history of mankind could be written as a series of made and broken relationships with plants. Think about the influence of tobacco on mercantilism in 17th and 18th century Europe. Think about the influence of coffee on the modern office worker or the way the British influenced opium policy in the Far East to rule China or the way the CIA used heroin in the American ghettos in the 1960s to choke off black dissent and black dissatisfaction with the war. History is about these plant relationships. They can be raised into consciousness integrated into social policy and used to create a more caring, meaningful world, or they can be denied the way sexuality was denied until the force of the work of Freud and others just made it impossible to maintain the fiction any longer. This choice of how quickly we develop into a mature community able to address this issue is entirely with us, I think. And certainly people like Stan Groff and others have worked valiantly to keep this kind of thing alive. But my God, you can count them on the fingers of one hand. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Well, uh, fortunately... Today there are many more scientists and doctors investigating psychedelic substances than I have time to list right now. At least things have been improving in that area, uh, as well as in regards to the legalization of cannabis. However, uh, as Terence just said, our moment is now, and so let's press on, my friends. Now after I sign off, I'm going to play one more thing for you. It's a song that Queer Ninja once told me had more impact on his early life than any other piece of music. The song is Small Town Boy by Bronski Beat, and someday I'll tell you the story about it that he told me. But right now it's music that we need to hear. And I'm going to let the ninja himself introduce it, kind of at least. You see, I've taken a short soundbite from his normal introduction to his Sounds of Worldwide Weed podcast, and I'm inserting it here so that we can remember how wonderful we felt when one of the ninja's new podcasts arrived, and we heard that laughing voice once again. So for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Sail on, queer ninja. Sail on, dear friend. (laughs) Easy, man. This is queer ninja. And you are listening to uh, a very special uh, resurrected Sounds of Worldwide Weed.
<laughs> Easy man, this is Queen Ninja. <laughs>